I was digging back into um, the book of Acts. So we've been mulling over the gospel. You know, it's, it's not uncommon that when we start on something that the Holy Spirit brings us further and further into it. And you find yourself um, coming across old paths. You find yourself repeating yourself and redigging things. And that's not for lack of content. That's because uh, all this stuff goes together. And really, uh, like you've probably heard someone say before, you don't believe what you hear. You believe what you hear over and over again, usually. Uh, what really gets a chance to sink into you are the things that you hear, and you hear, and you repeat, and you say, and you say again. In fact, I've, I've found in my life that there have been people in my life that said, do you remember when the Lord said this over you guys? Do you remember when this was prophesied? Do you remember when this? And I'll say, honestly, I didn't remember it until you told me. I feel ashamed for a minute. You know, I should remember that. But I didn't remember until you reminded me because, as Paul said to Timothy, it's important that I stir you up by way of remembrance. So as we go through these, uh, we've been talking about the gospel for the past couple months, and I've enjoyed it thoroughly. But I found that, you know, anytime you read the Bible, let me tell you, give you a little tip on how you know what you're, re- what you're believing about what you're reading is true. Because you know that you can read something and the other person says, well, I get something totally different from that. And somebody over there says, I don't see how you see that at all. It says this. One of the ways you can know you're reading it correctly is if you can find that truth echoing in other places. If you can only... If the only way this can be true in your Bible is if you read this one verse and you read it in one translation and you read it with your one eye closed. If that's the only time you see that truth, it may not be the truth you think it is. Because when you read, when you get into God's words, you find that he is weaving a thread and he's repeating himself and he's, he's building this up with this. And, and it all flows together so wonderfully because the God that wrote this using human, flawed humans, but he, he breathed his breath into this word. That God has seen the future and the end all at the same time. We've used this example before, but I'll repeat it for your benefit. That, that when you see a parade, you, and I don't know, anybody like parades? All right, all right, cool. Some people. Some people are ashamed for fear that it, maybe I'll tell you it's not Christian to like parades. <laughs> parades are great. I personally am not a big parade guy. I don't like standing still too long. Um, my wife likes it. My son likes it. So sometimes we go. But just standing and watching people walk by or Shriners in their little cars doesn't do it for me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if you were just standing watching a parade, you'd see the beginning and then you'd see the middle and you'd see the end. And you'd wait for it. You wouldn't know how, maybe you knew uh, in about 10 minutes the last float's going to come by. But if you were in a helicopter looking down, you'd see the beginning, middle, end all at the same time. It wouldn't, you wouldn't be waiting for the middle. You wouldn't be waiting for the end. You'd see it all at once. We live in linear time. God created time. He created it for us. But he doesn't live in time. So he's like the guy in the helicopter that's looking at the whole parade, seeing end, middle, beginning, seeing it all at once. Not just seeing it, but being involved in it. And so th- this thread, that we, we'll keep on picking up threads and pulling it here and tying it together here. And you may say, well, this sounds familiar, but that's a good thing because that's God reinforcing truths in you. And I want to dig into to the book of Acts with you for a minute. And I want to talk to you about uh, um, uh, what happens when 
Your plans are derailed. What happens when your perfectly laid plans to do something for the Lord is totally thrown off? We're a, we're a nation of planners, I think. It doesn't mean we plan well, but we think we like to have a plan. Sometimes we don't do spontaneous too well. And so what happens is a lot of times if, if we have, you know, we say, Lord, I know this is what you put on my heart. We'll go and we'll try to read every book about it, which is probably good. We'll, we'll, we'll seek counsel and then we'll try to lay a game plan. Here's, here's how I want to fulfill God's will in my life. And while there's a benefit to that diligence, I'm not telling you that's wrong. I'm also telling you your plans will never end up like you think they'll end up. And if you get thrown off the first time something changes, you'll get thrown off very quickly, right? Because things will all, you know, God sees what you don't see. And it's not that he's hiding things from you. But there are times where he doesn't fully give you. I mean, he may say, I'm giving you a glimpse. You're going to see through a glass dimly. You're going you're gonna to get a glimpse of your future. But if he were to show you everything, you would try to get there by the shortest route possible. Your way would not be his way. Your perception of it would not be his perception of it. If I showed you a picture right now of a big city, you may, you may know what city that is. You may mistake it for another city. You may think, you know, you may think, well, that's Edmonton, but it might be Philadelphia. You know, you just see some skyscrapers for a minute, and you think you know where you are. But, but God sees what the, the intricacies and the details, but he also knows how to guide you through because as the Israelites learned, the trip is just as important as the destination. I'm going to teach you things on the trip that you're going to need for the destination. So as we get to the book of Acts, we're going to pick up when the church was in turmoil. The church seemed to be doing well for a while. I don't know if you've read, but the first, the first day of the church, if we're going to call it that, which I would say is the day of Pentecost was the first real day of the church, right? I mean, Jesus had commissioned them. You could say that was the beginning. But most people, if you're going to say, when did the church really begin? You'd say it was the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came on the church. What a wonderful day. 120 souls are gathered in a room, eating together, praying together, waiting because Jesus told them to wait. They don't know how long. They just know we're supposed to wait. And when they are filled with the Holy Spirit, they begin speaking in other tongues, each and every one of them, and then they leave the room. They leave the upper room and they hit the street. They hit the city, which is what should always happen, right? What God does in the room never is just supposed to stay in the room. It's supposed to start and then spread. And so they spread to the city. And the Bible says 3,000 are added that day. If you go just a little bit further, 5,000 are added not long from then. And it says many more keep getting added to their number. And a large number of those that are believing are added to their number of being baptized. So their church isn't just growing by a couple families every week. They're growing by thousands. And can you imagine belonging to the early church in Jerusalem? And you don't, know who's, you don't know who's ministering right now, but you know it's probably one of the 12 apostles. I mean, talk about embarrassment of riches. You got the 12 apostles ministering and, 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 and several other really capable people that have walked with Jesus, witnesses to his resurrection. And in the church in Jerusalem, finally they're getting some traction. They've had opposition. They've been threatened with their lives. They've got faith. They've got boldness. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 4 again. And they're ready. And, and not only have they been filled with the Holy Spirit with boldness to preach, but God gave them a master plan on how to feed the widows and the poor. 
Nobody was needy in their crowd because they shared with each other and there was supernatural provision. The city is taking notice. But in Jerusalem, like in other places, there were Hebrew-speaking Jews and then there's Greek-speaking Jews. And the Hebrew-speaking Jews were, uh, like all the people that followed Jesus, were mostly Hebrew-speaking Jews. They kind of looked down on the Hellenistic Jews because they felt like those guys were the ones who had kind of compromised, that they were a little bit too uh, uh, infiltrated with the culture of the world around them, the Greek-speaking Jews. They didn't, they didn't even know how to speak Hebrew. They'd been out of the culture for so long. and So there were men like Stephen and Philip that, that were kind of on the margins of the church. And in fact, the Bible says that their widows were not being taken care of to the same level as the Hebrew-speaking widows. So there was an issue that had to be addressed. So a lot of times there, there's issues like that in every church, in every city. You don't know, but you're usually drawn to the people that are like you, right? You're, you're, you tend to, even if you don't dislike anybody else, you, you tend to, you know, hang out with the people you can talk to easily, and, and you like to be around. And, and one of the great things about the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit totally breaks down those barriers and ties people together. I noticed this when I was growing up, that churches that were actively spirit-filled churches had the most diversity. And I, you, couldn't, you couldn't give any other reason than that's just what the Holy Spirit does. And, and, and when there's something bigger than our programs and, our, and, our, and a good message, but when God's really moving in a congregation, people from all nations can find a commonality. And yet, still, sometimes you don't know the needs of another community. And so this group of widows wasn't being fed. And the disciples said, the apostles, the 12, said, well, it's not desirable to us it's not desirable to us that we should neglect the word of God. We're, we're not preaching enough. We're, we're spending all our time on strategically trying to make sure everybody's fed. They said it's not desirable for, for us to neglect the word in order to wait tables. So pick seven guys from your group. So they didn't say pick, pick a mix. They said seven Greek-speaking Jews. You pick them because they understand your community the best. Pick those seven guys, but they got to be full of, the, full of the spirit, full of faith, full of wisdom. Pick those guys. And so they did. And we, we had a whole group of these seven guys that were just mighty men of God, not just waiters, although there's nothing wrong with being a waiter, uh, but, but powerful preachers. In fact, uh, that's how this all starts is that Stephen goes and starts preaching in his own synagogue where the apostles aren't speaking because they don't speak Greek. Or maybe they speak Greek, but they're hanging out in the Jewish Jewish, uh, Hebrew uh, synagogues. And so a guy like Philip and a guy like Stephen, they start preaching the word. And Stephen starts preaching it so powerfully that he gets some new enemies. And they have him killed. And the man that presides over the killing of Stephen is who we now know as the Apostle Paul. At the time, amongst his Hebrew friends, he was known as Saul of Tarsus. And it says he gave hearty agreement and was persecuting the church. And that's where we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, after the death of Stephen, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, 
entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. We find out later by his own testimony before a king, he says, I murdered them. I had them killed. It's harsh, isn't it? And they're all scattered. You can think you just have this pumping church, a church that's moving, a church that's active, a church that's so full of the gifts of the Spirit. And then with one, one event, the church is broken up. And people are spread all over. And the only people that stay in Jerusalem are the apostles and a few, a few devout believers. But it says here, in verse 4, therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. I want you to think about that statement for a minute. Those who've been scattered went about preaching the word. You better believe that, that everything they thought they knew, everything they thought was stable in their life has just been shaken, and yet their instinct is to preach the word. And if you were digging to the original language here, there's something we've talked about before. The word, there's a word in the, in the Greek language for preach. There's more than one word that you could use, but there's a word for preach. There's a word for word. The word that's used here is logos. But the word for preaching that's here is not just the word to proclaim something. It's actually the word, it's a compound word, which means to proclaim good news. To preach good news. Can I ask you, if you got kicked out of your city, if your church was under intense persecution, your friends had been put to death, would you go from city to city telling them about the good news? Would you be a carrier of good news? Or would you be a spreader of, you wouldn't believe what's happening in Jerusalem, bringing bad news from city to city, telling them how bad it is in Jerusalem? I'm not saying they didn't tell people that. But the overwhelming testimony that was coming from them was good news. The good news was heavier than the bad news. I don't think they're going around saying, Jerusalem? What Jerusalem? I've never heard of that place. I don't think they're saying, oh, there's no persecution. It's fine over there. I think they're being honest with people. I think they're saying the reason we were scattered was because there's intense persecution. And yet, the Bible doesn't say they went about with a mixture of bad and good news. It says they went about proclaiming. Remember the word for preaching is to announce. They went about announcing good news. Would you be in the mood to announce good news in their situation? Because, friends, I know that we have people in the audience that have been, in, been from places where it's a lot harder to preach the gospel than it is here in Canada. But nobody in Canada faced what they faced that I know of in this nation. I mean, you may have faced it somewhere else, but we've never had that level of persecution here. They went about scattered, lost their homes, lost their families, lost their church, saying, we've got good news to share with you. Wow. I don't want to tell you that that's not minimizing the bad. That's magnifying and maximizing what was good. The gospel must be really good. It must be so good that it's bigger than anything else. It must be so heavy that it's heavier than anything else. It must weigh that much. Really, that's how good it is. And here's the thing, guys. We have all these questions we want answered at all times in our life. Who, what, where, when, why? I remember we used to have, we may still have the show W5. Is that still on? Like a good Canadian. I know it was W5 at one point. 
grew up and you'd see, uh, you'd see it on, I'd change the channel because I didn't care about that when I was a kid. <laughs> but W5, trying to answer the five question, who, what, where, when, why? I will tell you, a lot of times, those five W's don't all weigh the same. We want them all answered, don't we? God, where are you sending me? Tell me the who, tell me the where, when, what, why. Tell me all that. But a lot of times in the scripture, the most important thing is who. Who is he? Who's your God? Who is Jesus? Who are you in him? When you know that, then the what comes out of that. Doesn't it? If you say, I'm a believer, well then, what comes out of a believer? belief, right? I mean, if you say, I am, I am called, and every single one of us is, I'm called to preach the gospel, then what do you do? You preach the gospel. If you say, I'm righteous by the blood of Jesus, then what do you do? You live righteousness, because that's who you are. This is why it's so important that we get God's revelation of what the blood of Jesus has done for us, that we no longer are just sinners trying to scrape our way through life because if you believe yourself to be a dirty sinner, you will sin in a dirty way because that's who you are. A dog acts like a dog, a pig acts like a pig, a bird acts like a bird, and a human acts like a human. If you think you're righteous, if you know you're righteous by the blood of Jesus, not by my work but by his, I will live righteously. If I believe myself to be a sinner irredeemable. Yes, I'm going to heaven, but you can't change my nature. I'm always going to be like this. Then you'll go around sinning and thinking it's just natural for you to do it. And if I believe myself to be a preacher, no matter what situation you put me in, I'm going to preach. You know, when God called me to be a pastor, he called me to be a preacher. He, He didn't call me to preach the gospel if I had a microphone. He didn't call me to preach the gospel if I have an audience. He just called us to preach the gospel. Now, to pastor people, there's elements of that that involve sometimes it helps that I have a microphone. We can hear the same thing at the same time. But am I not a preacher when I'm in Safeway? Am I not a preacher when I'm in the airport? Now, I may not. And I'll tell you, most of the time, I don't feel God's leading for me to just stand in the middle of gate B5 and yell at the top of my lungs, you all going to hell and you need to get saved. But... But you better believe there's been opportunities at the strangest times where I knew my plans are not going as I thought they were going. But there is a person right here that God put in my path right now. And that's better than me getting to my destination on time. Remember one particular evangelist, if I mentioned his name, you guys, many of you would know it. But just a very gifted, uh, passionate uh, uh, evangelist that, that really focuses on just hitting the street and leading people to Jesus. And I'm inspired by people like that. Uh, one of those guys that just walks amongst, walks down the street and just finds people and the Holy Spirit will say, hey, this is the person, focus on them, you know, pray for them. And, and sees many people come to Jesus. But I remember him telling a story of how he was coming back to his, his home nation and he was delayed in customs. And, and, and in fact, they took him to a separate room to interrogate him. He'd done nothing wrong. He wasn't smuggling anything. He was trying, wasn't trying to dodge duty or taxes. He was, he was just trying to come home. They have him in a room treating him like a criminal. He's going to miss his flight. You know what happens a lot of times when that kind of stuff goes on? We're real Christian on the plane sitting next to somebody. 
we get in a situation like that, we're infuriated. How dare you trample on my rights? How dare you treat me like a criminal? How dare you make me miss my flight? And, and we step out of who we are in Christ, and we step into the flesh, and we just get angry. We take it out on whoever. My wife and I were recently in an airport, and there was a, uh, <laughs> a fellow. <laughs> I don't know what he was mad about, but he had stepped in. Well, I kind of do, because he stepped into the uh, point of no return. Into you, You're flying to America. And once you pass this point, you can't come back until you clear customs back into Canada. So there's this weird no man's land where you feel like you know you're in Canada technically. Like this, this air I'm breathing is Canadian air. I know that. But for all intents and purposes, you're not in Canada anymore. You have to clear customs to come back. This guy's standing over here, and uh, I don't know what he forgot. I don't know what he needed. One time I remember that they had a, a flight that was delayed for seven hours, and these people were stuck on this side without their cigarettes, and there was no smoking area, and they were very unhappy, uh, as you can imagine, you know. And so I don't know what this guy's deal was, but he stood the whole time. He stood behind this agent who was at a table, and he just kept saying, you're incompetent. You know that? You're incompetent. You don't know what you're doing. And this guy's just trying to do his job. People are lined up. And this guy's sta standing in the U.S., I guess, yelling at this guy. And the guy says, can you please just go? And he goes, no, you're incompetent. You don't know what you're doing. And I imagine this fellow who was being interrogated probably felt like he could, he could unload on these officers. But instead, the Lord brought back a, a verse from Psalm 23. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And he found himself sitting at a table. And he says, I don't call these people my enemy, but they sure think they're my enemy. I'm their enemy. So he said, Lord, you've just set a table for me. These people are stuck in a room with me. As long as they want to be in the room, they're stuck here. So I'm going to lead them to Jesus. And he began to use that opportunity to tell them why he was on that trip. And to let him know what God had done while he was on that trip. And just begin to minister to these people. And, and they have a choice. Let me go or hear more about Jesus. Either way, I win. <laughs> Do you see when we, our plans get derailed, you will revert to who you are. When you are thrown off, you'll go back to instinct. You find out what you've been feeding your spirit when you almost get in a car wreck. What comes out of your mouth? Are you calling on the name of the Lord? Or does cursing come out? And I'm not condemning you for that because some of us still need to renew our minds. You need to renew your tongue. You say, I've got new habits to form. But I'll tell you, when you feed yourself the word of God, it comes out when you don't expect it. You will revert to who you are. And these people, even though they were scattered, even though their lives were shambles, they reverted to who they were. We preach the gospel. It goes on and it says... Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. I don't know if you guys know much about the Jewish Samaritan situation, but there was huge racial, cultural differences. So much so that, uh, they, you know, when Jesus said there was a, a good Samaritan, that was, that was the joke right there. That was hard to believe. They hated each other. They believed both of them. They believed the other one was heres, heretics. So not only had they racial issues, they had religious issues. God sends this good Jew, Philip, 
Greek-speaking Jew as he is, sends him down to Samaria, and his first instinct is, well, I guess I should preach the gospel here. He's not trying to get, his, he's not trying to get back to Jerusalem. He's not trying to gather a group. Let's, let's raise up enough people, and we're going to storm Jerusalem again. He just says, okay, I'm here. I'm going to preach because that's what I do. I'm a preacher. I don't know if you read the whole book of Acts, but by the time you get to Acts chapter 21, Philip has a title. He is called Philip the Evangelist. But he didn't get that title before he started doing the work of God. He didn't get that title at this point in life. Nobody was calling Philip the Evangelist. They were calling Philip the Table Waiter. Remember what the apostle said. We should neglect the word. We, should we neglect the word to wait tables? It's kind of an insulting way to put people into a job, right? We're far too important to do this. You do this. You don't feel very important when someone says that, hey. But that was Philip's job. He wasn't called Philip the Evangelist. A lot of us are waiting for someone to give us a title before we'll do what we're supposed to do. Philip just did it. And he's preaching in Samaria, and then I'll skip down because what happens is he, he sees so many people saved and set free. He sees uh, evil spirits come out. He sees people getting healed uh, that, that the whole city, the Bible says there's great joy in the city. They're, they're turning to Jesus, and then the apostles hear about it, and they come down and check it out. And they say, Philip, you've done a great job. You forgot to tell them about the Holy Spirit. He goes, oops. And they say, that's okay. We'll fix it, buddy. And they preach the Holy Spirit, and then the whole city gets that much tur more turned on to Jesus. And then they go back, the, the disciples that had nothing to do with Samaritans. In fact, it wasn't long ago that James and John says, let's kill them all with fire. Now those guys are preaching in every Samaritan village on the way home. He's revolutionized their missions. And then something happens. He could easily just set up his home base and say, this is where I'm supposed to be. I got a good group of believers to disciple. But it says this, that later on, in uh, verse 26, but an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, get up and go. Some of my least favorite words that God will say is get up and go. <laughs> but it's pretty common, isn't it? Get up and go. Get up and go. Just when you think you're settled. Just when you think you finally got. Lord, I was uprooted from my home. I was uprooted from my home church. And now I finally have got my footing again. And God says, get up and go. Get up and go south. To that road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. It's about a 50-mile road. Get on that road and start walking. God doesn't give him coordinates. God doesn't give him a, a pin on the Apple map. He doesn't tell him anything. He just says, get up and start walking that road. I mean, if God told you to get up and start walking one trail in Bud Miller, you'd ask for more specifics. Which one? Which direction? Which huddle of trees? How long? What time? We're asking all the W's, aren't we? But Abraham only had one W. The Bible says Abraham, by faith, went out not knowing where he was going not knowing how long he'd be walking, not knowing even why, but he knew who he was following. And if you know who, the what will come, the why will come, and the when and where will just sort itself out. The most important thing is you know who. Get up and go south to this road. So he got up and he went. I love that. The angel said, get up and go. Philip got up and went. Those are, that's a good chain of events. 
And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he'd come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And he said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation for his life is removed from the earth? The eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, began from, beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And as they were along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. It's an incredible chain of events. And I used to read this story. I was so jealous of Philip. I was so jealous of Philip. Let me, let me remind you what happens. He walks up to this chariot, and the man is already reading the Bible. Nice, right? Why does it never happen to me? Not only is he only, he's already reading the Bible. He's not reading something weird in Leviticus. He's reading Isaiah, a prophecy about Jesus. And he goes, he says to, to Philip, Phil. Who's this talking about? Apparently this man is suffering. Is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? And Philip says, well, I'm glad you asked. That happens to be talking about Jesus. And he preaches Jesus. Then the, the eunuch practically gets himself saved and then says, hey, there's water. Anything stopping me from being baptized? Philip says, well, now that you say it, I can't think of anything. Do you believe? I believe. Well, but that was easy, wasn't it? I used to read this as a teenager and say, God, it's never that easy for me. Why do you make it so easy for Philip? And then you realize, God didn't make it easy for Philip. Philip got kicked out of Jerusalem. Philip went to a city that his mom told him, never go near those people. They're bad. Philip went up against a sorcerer that had control over that city and stood up to him. And Peter came in and put that guy in his place. Philip started walking down a 50-mile road, not knowing where, when, why. Just walk. How long, Lord? Do I bring a backpack? Do I bring food? Do I bring water? Just walk. Philip is told by the Spirit of God, go run and catch that chariot. Now, I want to remind you that when the Lord first told him to walk down that road, he gets an angel. Hard for us to say no to an angel. Okay. But what about... The Spirit speaking to you, to your spirit, when it's nothing more than a voice in your spirit. And you don't get some big shiny dude with a sword telling you to do something. You just have this quickening in your own spirit. And you go, Lord, is that me? Lord, is that me? Is that you? Is that me? Is that you? But Philip knew it was the Spirit of God. And the Lord said, go run and catch that chariot. This is a very important chariot. This is the guy that's in charge of all the treasure of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. He probably has treasure with him. He probably has a caravan. This is a guy in a limo in a motorcade. And Philip is told, go catch that one. 
Can you imagine seeing a motorcade of very important people with bodyguards and all that? And the Lord says, go run and catch that car and knock on the window. No, I'm not doing that. I'll send them an email. I'll go, I'll, I'll, when I get home, I'll check the website. I'll find out how to get in touch. I'll get in touch with their people. Philip knows, go, go catch that chariot. So he does. All that easy stuff wasn't easy. It just seems easy when you skip right to the middle of the story. Supernatural doesn't always look supernatural when you first start doing it. There's plenty of things about God leading you and guiding you where there is no halo on your head and there are no shiny lights telling you this is the way, walk in it. But you just have this strong sense in your spirit, this is where I'm supposed to go. And it takes bravery and it takes faith and it takes foolishness as far as the world is concerned. And if you want the easy stuff that Philip went through, sometimes we got to step out into the difficult part of not knowing where, not knowing when, not even knowing why, just knowing who told me to go and who am I that you would send me. As God said to Jeremiah, don't ever make an excuse with me again. Jeremiah said, Lord, I'm too young. God said, don't use that excuse anymore. You're not too young. Where I tell you to go, you'll go. What I tell you to say, you'll say. Jeremiah's excuse was he was young. You can go ahead and substitute your own excuse there. Whatever it is, you can go ahead and say it to God once and then just let him say to you, don't say that again. Because it's really not about you. It's not about your ability. It's not about your anointing. It's about my anointing on you. It's about my ability in you. It's about my spirit in you. And Philip goes and who is he when, when all of this stuff is taken away? Who is he when all his world is shaken? Who is he when everything seems to change? I am a believer. I'm a son of the king. And I'm a preacher of the gospel. It says after he baptized the eunuch. In verse 39. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. Now, you may have fond memories of your baptism, but that's kind of the coolest baptism story I've ever heard. <laughs> Can you imagine coming up out of the water and then the, the person that dunked you is gone the minute you come out? Just snatched up. You'd be checking the drain. Where do they go, you know? Philip is snatched away by the Holy Spirit. And it says, the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. I love that. Eunuch doesn't start a search party. just goes, I guess this is what it's like. You know, these believers are weird. <laughs> I'm rejoicing. I feel good, you know. But Philip found himself at Azotus. If you look on a map where Azotus is, and it was the ancient city of Ashdod that you read about in the Old Testament. Now it's Azotus. It's in Syria. And here he's way over here. And he started way over here, and now he's way over here. And he's just been translated in a moment like that. He's there. And he found himself like he's probably going around asking people, hey, where am I? And they go, you don't know? No, I don't know. <laughs> well, where's the last place you remember you were? Uh, you don't even want to know that. I don't even know the answer. I was on a road. And so he asked some people, you know, where am I? You're in Azotus. Now, Philip has got to get to Caesarea. He's in Azotus. He's got to get to Caesarea. That's 60 miles away, and he's got to walk. 
I used to read this story. Once again, I read it wrong. I used to read this story and say, read the story of Philip being translated in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit took him from one place and bam, he was in another place. And I was like, I want that. I want that. I have to drive places and I have to walk places. Why can't God pick me up and put me instantly? Beam me up, Scotty, right there where I need to be. I was so jealous of Philip until you realize that God didn't make it convenient for him. He dropped him 60 miles from where he needed to be. If anything, he made it way harder. I'm not jealous anymore. Brent and I, when we were teenagers, one time we tried it. We're in the Nissan Pulsar. Brent says, why shouldn't we just, just see? Let's just pray. See if we get translated. All right. <laughs> Didn't work, but for that moment that we had our eyes closed, it wasn't very safe. We, we might have got translated into the ditch, couldn't we? But the Lord kept us on the road, and that was our miracle for the day. <laughs> but it, you come to read it, and you realize it didn't make it any more convenient for Philip. If anything, it made it harder. But here's what happened. Listen to this. This is the important part. Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. What does Philip know about why he's there? Nothing. I don't know why I ended up here. I don't know how I ended up here. This is something i got to ask God about. There wasn't even a chariot of fire taking me here. I just was here. I don't know why. I don't know what the purpose is, but I know one thing. Well, I know a couple things. I know who he is. He's good. He's faithful. He's powerful. Amen. And I know another thing. I'm a preacher of the gospel. So if I find myself in Jerusalem, I'm going to preach. If I'm in Samaria, I'm going to preach. If I'm in Azotus, I'm going to preach. And I know i got to get to Caesarea, and it's a long walk, so I'm going to preach at every village I find until I get there. What do you do when your plans are thrown into disarray? What do you do when all your careful, well-laid schedules and, and, and plans for the future and investments in this and all your discussions about what should we do with this, what happens when all that's thrown out? Would you be prone to tell people, I've got good news? Because if you know who you are, at your core, you're a preacher of the gospel. At your core, you're a child of the king. At your core, you are a light in the midst of darkness. So whatever bit of darkness you find yourself in, and it's all over the world, whatever bit of darkness you find yourself in, I'm here to shine. That's what we're telling our kids today. They're here to shine. They're here to shine the light of Jesus. They're going to be different. They're going to be different. But hey, different is good. Right? Is anybody hungry for Arby's? <laughs> Nobody's really hungry for Arby's, are you? I had to get this into my heart because I love to plan. I love to think about things before they happen. My son's like me. If we tell him we're doing something or this is the plan, and then the plan changes because it has to change, he needs some time to process that information. He's fine with it. He just needs a minute. At our core, like I said, when you're thrown off, you'll always go back to what you know. Peter and John and the rest of those disciples, when Jesus was crucified, and even after his resurrection, he comes and he goes, he disappears from their midst, and they don't know where he is. 
So you know what they do? They just go back fishing. They go back to what they know. But after Jesus recommissions them into ministry and says, Peter, feed my sheep, and after they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they don't go back to fishing. Do you know what they go back to? Wherever they go, they go preach the gospel. If I'm in prison, I'm preaching the gospel. If I'm about to get my head lopped off, I'm preaching the gospel. Paul said this. He said, I know, I want you to know that my circumstances here, and where was he? He was in the lowest Roman prison that they had. If you go and visit the Mamertine prison today, you'll find that it was a converted sewer where the worst of the worst were kept in the worst conditions. Paul was kept there. He was allowed, some say once a month, if you paid a right fee, you could write a letter home. Men like Timothy would come, Epaphras would come, minister to him while he was in prison, take his letters and go distribute them. And while he's in that prison, and then later on, he's, not, he's, he's, he's in that prison for a time, and then later on, he's in house arrest for a time. And in both places, he says, I want you to know my circumstances have turned out for the greater good of the gospel. For all my prison guards are getting saved. He says, many of the palace guard are being born again and becoming believers. You put him in a crummy prison, he's still going to preach. You put him under house arrest, he's still going to preach. You put him on trial in front of a king, he's still going to preach. And when God called him, said, you're going to preach in front of kings and rulers for my name, I'm sure he might have thought, I'm going to be a dinner guest. They're going to invite me over. I'm going to have an audience with the king. But he later found out, the way you're going to have audience with all these kings is you're going to be on trial in front of them. Paul said, good enough, as long as I'm preaching the gospel to them. It's like John the Baptist learned, you can still get invited over for dinner and lose your head. That can still happen. There's no guarantees. I want you to examine your life because everybody's world's a bit more shaken than it was two years ago. Some more than others. Some more than others. Some of you have had to make big decisions in the past few weeks. Some of you still don't know what the end of this will be for you and your family. And the result is sometimes we grieve the loss of the familiar. And we enter into sorrow. In fact, the disciples kept falling asleep when Jesus was in the garden praying. They kept falling asleep over and over again. Men who, whose career required that they stay up all night and fish were falling asleep in the middle of the night. And Jesus kept waking them up, saying, why can't you stay awake and pray? They kept falling asleep. One of, the, one of the gospels says they fell asleep because of sorrow. There's something about sorrow, deep sorrow over loss, that puts you in a place where all you want to do is just go to sleep. I've seen believers that had their life planned out, had ministry planned out, had careers planned out, and when it got thrown off, even by a degree, All they want to do is step back, retract. I don't know what's going on anymore. You know what? I'm just going to take a step back. Just take a step back. Sometimes it's good to take a step back and take a broader view. But when you take a step back, it's taking a step back so you can take a step forward in faith. Retreat is not retreat because you're running away. Retreat is retreat. The word retreat means let's get back together and talk. That's what it means to treat, to a treaty, a treatise. Let, retreat doesn't mean run away. Retreat says let's regroup and move forward again. There was a time in the, in the church, in churches around uh, Canada, where if you said you were going on a retreat, they said, that's not faith. They call it an advance. All right. We don't retreat. We advance. Okay. You know what? 
It was just a season where we corrected over each other over everything. <laughs> Sometimes you got to retreat. Sometimes you got to step back and say, let's get ready. Let's talk. Let's hear the voice of the Lord so we can advance. Right? But I find that believers today, some of them are not retreating because they want to find God's will. Some of them are retreating because they are sorrowful. And they're tired. And they don't know where to go now. And they're like sheep without a shepherd. Here's the problem. You're not without a shepherd. Your great shepherd, Jesus Christ, the Lord of the flock, is over you. And though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't need to fear any evil. For he is with you. Come on. He is with you. You got to remember, he's not meeting you on the other side of the valley. He's not saying, I'll, I'll send you through and I'll meet you over here when it gets to still waters again. You'll see me. He, just, just walk this way for this many clicks and you'll get there. No, he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they come for me. And I'll tell you, when you are in unfamiliar situations, thank God for his staff. Where he begins to nudge you and say, no, no, sheep, come back. Come over here. Where he, and you know what? Thank God. That, I know that club has some spikes on it, and it beats, off the, it beats the wolves away, and it beats the lions away. But you know what else the shepherds sometimes use that little, that little club for? Poking the sheep in the rear end and moving them forward. Like Dave, I think David said that last week, didn't he? He said it somewhere else. I've been so in so many meetings this week, I don't remember who said what. Sometimes you just need someone poking the, the rear end of the sheep saying, don't lie down. Now, this is not the place to lie down. I've got, I've got a place for you to lie down. This ain't it. Because you're not lying down because you're in the right place. You're lying down because you're tired. You're worn out. You don't know where you're going. You're confused. You're sorrowful. You're lost. But I want to tell you something. If you straighten up like Jesus said and look up, your redemption draws near. And the shepherd has guidance for you. Amen. I just love you guys so much. And I want you to know. When everything is shaken, who are you and who is he? When you know the who's, the what will follow, the why will follow. Somewhere in the journey, you'll figure out the when and the where. But that's not the important part. Know who you're following and know who you are in him. Amen. Would you stand up with me?